The Murthy Law Firm has been clarifying U.S. immigration laws and procedures for foreign nationals since 1994. Teleconferences and podcasts were added to the resources available online in 2012. We are happy to offer this free service. Please listen to copyright information and restrictions at the end of this recording. Now, we are pleased to introduce attorney Sheila Murthy. Welcome. I'm Sheila Murthy, President and CEO of the Murthy Law Firm. Thank you so much for joining us for today's teleconference on the topic of the third-party placement of STEM OPT workers. Is this truly a USCIS change in policy? On the panel today with me is Anna Stepanova, Assistant Managing Attorney at the Murthy Law Firm, and Chris Drynan, who's a senior attorney. Um, and so we're going to talk about the topic, discuss a few issues that we believe are of pressing concern to many of you who are participating in today's conference call. So what exactly is the change in the USCIS position with regard to third-party placements of STEM OPT workers? So as most of you already know, the USCIS has revised its interpretation of the STEM OPT rule by taking a much stricter view that STEM OPT workers must be placed directly with the employer with no exception in order to satisfy the STEM OPT requirements. And these requirements obviously include the employer-employee relationship, the employer's obligation to provide training and oversight to its STEM OPT student workers. So looks scary, looks bad, but I'm going to ask Chris, you know, what exactly is the USCIS you know, what was the policy prior to this, and so what's the change? Well, the current, well, Sheila, the current STEM OPT rules went into effect in May of 2016. Um, those rules, uh, for the first time, made significant changes to the, to the pre-existing STEM OPT extension program. Um, they started at that time to require that the employer and the student uh, complete a form called an, an I-983, um, which is called a Mentoring and Training Plan. Uh, and this provides certain oversight and training uh, requirements for STEM OPT workers. And it also instituted uh, specific wage requirements and reporting requirements and some other uh, attestations, in other words, signatures under, their, under pain of penal- pain and pains and penalties of perjury um, for certain uh, work conditions. Um, and the rule also specifically prohibited some types of work arrangements that were that would be acceptable under the initial uh, one-year OPT, such as volunteers or volunteer or unpaid positions, uh, and/or self-employment. So basically, that was when they decided to change it to no longer allow the volunteer and unpaid and the self-employment, Correct. which is strange. So for year one, you're allowed to do that, and then for the STEM OPT year two and three, you're not allowed to do that, which is of course you know for people. So I guess students now have to work with an employer. So, Anna, what kind of questions immediately arose about all of this? Well, as Chris already mentioned, the uh, new um, rule, STEM OPT rule, specifically prohibited some type of arrangements such as volunteer and paid position, uh, self-employment, but it did not prohibit uh, third-party placement for those uh, consulting companies who normally place their workers off-site. But... 
almost immediately that became a question, a very important question, because as uh, we heard here and probably some of our listeners today also heard uh, when the rule went into effect, some of the DSOs refused to um, provide an I-20 with the STEM OPT recommendation if they knew that the work would be uh, performed off-site. But the rule didn't specifically prohibit it, and for a long time, that it was implied that such uh, arrangement uh, was possible, and it was later confirmed by Student and Exchange Visitor Program, which posted uh, a set of questions and answers on its website, and uh, one of the uh, questions specifically had to do with staffing and temporary agencies. So in response to that question, SVP said that the employer which signs the uh, form I-983 must adhere to all of the requirements and attestations, including those of um, oversight and training. And if the staffing or temporary agency does not meet these requirements, they cannot employ STEM OPT workers. So in other words, they did not specifically say that uh, any company, including staffing and temporary agency or consulting company, they did not specifically say that they would be prohibited from placing their third OPT, uh, I'm sorry, third um, uh, prohibited from place, placing their workers at third-party uh, third work sites as long as they comply with all of the requirements otherwise. Okay, and what about the form? Doesn't the form have something in it, Chris? The form, the I, form I-983 um, actually does, uh, does specifically relate to this. It separately requests information about the name and address of the workplace uh, in addition to the address of the employer. Therefore, it does appear that the form was originally designed to account to, to situations where the, the student would be at a third-party a third party, uh, placement. Um, now, all the information on the form I-983 is submitted to the DSO at the school, who then enters it into the student's uh, CVIS record um, prior to making a recommendation for STEM OPT employment. Um, this information is available to USCIS to issue a decision on the STEM OPT application. Um, and therefore, it also appears um, that USCIS, by the design of the form, uh, did not initially have a problem with this type of, type of arrangement. Otherwise, they would not separately ask for this information. It, it doesn't really make any sense to do it if you're not going to allow it. Yeah, exactly. And so it's also important in terms of the timing of when all these changes occurred. As some of you are probably already aware, the USCIS kind of sneakily surreptitiously mm -hmm. updated the language on their website on 24th of January of this 2018 of this year, which is indicated only because you look at the last reviewed slash updated date at the bottom of the that page, but because they made no policy announcement, they didn't even forget about a change in the law, a change in the regulations, um, or even what they've done recently in the past year, which is kind of slip in, whether it's an executive order or slip in a policy memo at the 11th hour, they didn't even bother to slip in a policy memo here, which is shocking. Uh, so there have really been no announcements or changes of their policy. So to a large extent, this change was went unnoticed until... Actually, uh, I guess both 
the Murthy Law Firm posted an article on the website, but we were actually not, did not want to post this article on the website until the international student, the organization that advises international students and DSOs, the NAFSA, posted the information on their website to advise DSOs of universities of this purported change in policy because we just certainly didn't want to educate the government or USCIS or ICE or even scare DSOs or employers into thinking that they cannot do something that really we're concerned doesn't have any force of law. Okay, the next issue is, I guess, the highlights or the, the most important points that are of great concern for employers and their STEM OPT extension employees. Anna? Okay, so that's a good question. If you read the uh, website, uh, USCIS website, and what exactly the change in their position that they um, updated their website was uh, presumably in January of this year, there are a number of points that would be worth mentioning. So the first one is uh, the one that everybody is talking about, that the STEM OPT training must take place on site at the employer's place of business to fulfill the training requirements. Uh, they don't seem to make any exceptions to that rule, which, again, is only their position. It's not really a rule or policy or change in the law. Uh, they also say that while the employer may assign the supervisory duty to its employee or contractor, it cannot assign it to an employee or contractor of its clients. And that's pre presumably part of the reason why oversight and training cannot happen at the client site. They also say that uh, for that reason specifically, the required training and oversight may not be fulfilled through online or other distance learning arrangements. Um, for example, through telephone calls or email, Skype, um, FaceTime, and, and so on. Even when a student visits the employer's site from time to time for training sessions, they specifically said that that's not going, in their opinion, that's not going to satisfy the requirements. And they also said that if a consulting company wants to employ a STEM OPT worker and um, what that worker uh, cannot be placed at the client site, but they could be placed with the employer, for example, working in that employer's IT department. So that is the only um, solution, I think, that they propose to IT consulting companies to resolve this issue of uh, using STEM OPT workers but not being able to place them off-site. It's just, uh, just the whole thing just is so bizarre. And I think you may have said this already, Anna, but the employer that signs the 983 must be the one that provides the practical training experience to the student. Uh, so we talked about, you know, being at the location, being where the employer locates it, but that's the other issue. So I'm curious then, why on earth, what is the, the reasoning or explanation that the USCIS seems to have concocted out of thin air for its sudden change in policy on this issue, Chris? Well, Sheila, I, I mean, USCIS really only gives one rationale for this. Um, they say that uh, ICE, Immigration and Customs Enforcement, which is the agency which is responsible for conducting site visits um, at work sites, does not have access to third-party work sites. In other words, if the student is at a, a, at a client location, USCIS is saying ICE cannot go in and conduct the site visit. That This is problematic in, in a couple of ways. 
Uh, firstly, ICE has never said that. ICE has not said this is an issue. ICE has not spoken on that. And secondly, I, uh, site visits are conducted all the time at third-party third party work sites in the H-1B context. Um, and no one, uh, neither USCIS nor ICE have, have ever said that this is an issue. Um, so the, the reasoning here seems really, really suspect. Um, okay. So I guess it's really like you're saying, unless ICE expresses its own position, the stated basis that this is simply impossible for ICE to have access to the third-party work side <laughs> remains at yeah. best speculative. ICE has never said that. Yeah, and ICE doesn't seem to have a problem yeah. knocking on people's doors, as we just said, in the H-1B context routinely mm -hmm. in third-party placement sites. And uh, we just should mm -hmm. mention that uh, the rule, not the rule, the position, the change in this position has uh, been posted on USCIS website since January, and I still hasn't uh, spoken on their own position. So we um, have all the reason to assume that they have been talking to USCIS, but it is um, very interesting that they have not expressed their position so far, and it's been several months since the change in the USCIS position. Exactly. So, as we said, you know, the U.S., the, uh, in fact, ICE has not been conducting any kind of site visits for STEM OPT workers anyway, uh, because we've never heard of any site visits conducted by ICE since even the initial STEM OPT rule went into effect about two years ago in May of 2016. And also, um, the USCIS the ch you know the, the the change in the USCIS position as we talked earlier does not really have any effect of any change in the law in the regulation in policy they've made no announcements uh, even warning people that this might happen in the future or might be coming about so that people can comment about it no notice and comment period no nothing no information so it's based seems to be at least based purely on either a non-existent rationale of another agency, namely Immigration and Customs Enforcement, or ICE, which in it has chosen not to speak about this topic. Uh, and arguably uh, and presumably this is the only explanation for their change. So, you know, we really need to, we need to see how USCIS will use this change in the future because we have not yet seen any direct effects of it. But talking about effects, maybe, uh, Anna, I'll have you and Chris talk a little bit about what do we, can we guess or imagine the possible ways in which the USCIS may plan to use this surreptitious change in its policy? That is a very good question, Sheila, because as you just said, we have not seen any effects of this change in their policy so far, so we can only speculate as to what exactly they can do with it. It's possible, but again, not entirely clear, that um, USCIS may use this new position in its decisions concerning changes of status uh, from F1 STEM OPT to H1B. And as you know, uh, we are now in the beginning of the new CAP season. Uh, people have just filed their CAP subject petitions, and USCIS uh, is only starting to look at them. So 
uh, all most of the, uh, these petitions presumably contain a request for change of status to H-1B, and a lot of them are asking to change status from F-1 or uh, people for on OPT to H-1B. So what USCIS may do is deny the change of status request uh, purely based on their position if the petition was filed on behalf of an employee who is on STEM OPT and is placed or has been working uh, at a third-party site. And that's possible. Um, you should also understand that it's, it, it's not going to result in the denial of the petition itself. So if USS makes that determination that the person, by virtue of working off-site, did not maintain his or her valid F1 status, it does not prevent USCIS or should not prevent USCIS from denying the petition itself. So if it starts happening, then um, the petition can still be approved, but it will be approved without the Form I-94, in which case the uh, employee may have to leave the U.S., apply for the visa, and then come back in H-1B status. So it, it, it's, uh, it may be a major inconvenience, but it's not going to kill the petition itself if they start doing that. Hmm. What about the risk that they might revoke previously approved STEM OPT extensions? That's also a possibility, Sheila. Um, USCIS may use this, this, cha this apparent change in their policy to revoke uh, STEM OPT extensions that they've already approved. Uh, the government does have the authority to start revocation proceedings um, in cases that have already been approved where the terms and conditions of the STEM OPT um, in the government's position have not been met. Um, as we mentioned earlier, when the, the student uh, signs the I-983, they make certain attestations. In other, th in other words, things that they're agreeing to under the penalty of perjury. And one of those says, I, specifically, I understand the Department of Homeland Security, uh, DHS, may deny, revoke, or terminate the STEM OPT of students whom DHS determines are not engaging in OPT in compliance with the law, including the STEM OPT of students who are not um, or whose employers are not complying with the plan, meaning the training plan. So the government does have the authority to revoke STEM OPT that they've already approved. Not something we've seen, um, but it is a possibility given this apparent change in their, their position here. And in addition to revocation proceedings, they can also deny new STEM OPT mm -hmm. applications uh, based on the same mm -hmm. attestation. So I, I know it's a, a huge concern for a lot of people now who are applying for STEM OPT now, but of course, you know, they have to truthfully answer all of the questions on the 983 and what um, happens with that application remains to be seen, uh, basically. Okay. That's one important point, Anna. You have to be, despite this apparent change, everything on the 983 has to be completed honestly and correctly. Um, I know this is very confusing confusing, and, and people are, are upset about this. Uh, it's no reason to, to cut corners on a 983 and potentially get, get yourself in more trouble here. Okay, so let's go to the question in terms of consulting companies who are probably on this conference call, people who routinely do third party placements, etc. You know, can they change their model of how they do business? Uh, you know, those that are already using these STEM OPT workers, do they need to do anything differently to assure that they can continue to use 
much needed high skilled workers where there's a clear shortage in America, a known recognized shortage by everybody over the years. But somehow this is becoming like the fake news. Everything seems to be fake, even though there is statistics and data clearly okay. telling you that there's a shortage. So how can these consulting companies use well, that? Well, that is a good question also. Um, for pretty much most of the IT consulting companies, if they cannot bring STEM OPT workers in uh, into their offices, into their headquarters, then I think what they need to do is to continue business as usual and try to adhere to all of the requirements of the STEM OPT rule. And if they're not able to bring um, the worker back in their office, next to the best, I think what they can do is to make sure that there is another employee who is not a student him or herself, but uh, who, Im who is employed by the um, employer and uh, placed at the same work site where the student worker is working. And uh, this way they could adhere to the most important requirement in the STEM OPT rule that um, provides that the employer is sh in charge of oversight and training and they cannot delegate it to any third party. So they would accomplish that by placing one of the employees together with the student at a third party site. So uh, that that is a good way to make sure or to at least to have a good position to argue that all of the requirements of the STEM OPT role have been met by uh, providing direct oversight and training uh, at the site where the work is being conducted. Interesting. So, so if they have, for example, these students, somebody who's a little bit higher up in the totem pole, a mid-level manager or a senior manager at the same and cli uh, client location yeah. or third-party site, yeah. mentoring, advising, training so that they are in compliance with the law. Well, I guess what? Guess what? You know, as I've often said, because some of you may or may not remember, Anna was a designated school official. Uh, um, worked at a you know well-known prestigious Midwestern university for many years before she went to law school and became an immigration law attorney. And so getting her insights and her connections and her ability to, I guess, talk to um, people at NAFSA really makes a big difference uh, in her ability to advise and mentor companies and employers um, and students and universities and talk to them. In fact, she's spoken several times at different uh, American Immigration Lawyers Association, ALA conferences in Washington, D.C. and elsewhere, elsewhere, and is in regular communication with NAFSA on this issue, which will actually bring me, and I'm going to ask whether Anna can do something that's just crossed my mind as we were kind of, as I'm thinking about this issue, um, is, Anna, do you think that you may be able to, for example... I don't know, send an email, pick up the phone, talk to somebody at NAFSA to tell them to advise or inform DSOs across the country that although the USCIS has made this change in its website, since it has not issued any kind of a regulation or even a policy guidance, that DSOs should continue to do business as usual and issue I-20s allowing for third-party placements because that's the biggest problem I'm thinking is companies coming to you and me and others in the firm and saying, hey, what can I do? I can't even now send in my STEM OPT extension because the DSO is refusing to endorse or sign the STEM OPT, you know, approve it. It's a good point. And I know that a lot of 
um, people reported to us that their DSOs refused to provide a recommendation um, for STEM OPT if they knew that the work would be performed at a third-party site. And that's very unfortunate. And I, I also know that NAFSA has very extremely smart people working uh, for it, and all of their policymakers and all of their uh, all of the people who work at their headquarters are extremely extremely knowledgeable, and they provide a lot of oversight and information to their members. But unfortunately, it's up to each individual DSO. At the end of the day, they're the only ones who um, have so-called, you know, the, the key to the student see this record. And if they refuse to provide that recommendation, um, we can try to convince them collectively, um, but it's their decision. So that's, sure. yeah. Well, I would, I, would, I would definitely at this point, I think, try to persuade them and explain to them that they need to be advising DSOs because at the end of the day, the DSOs change their position because again, it's half-baked knowledge. They look at the NAFSA website, they look at whatever, multi.com, they look at other, and then they start to get confused. And then they say, you know what? I want to keep my job safe and I'm not going to even do a little bit extra because I don't want to lose my job by approving something that the government thinks is incorrect or improper, when in fact, most of us know that all of the USCIS, uh, the, the mentoring and training pl plans that have been submitted, the 983s are in fact getting approved. And as we talked about it earlier and discussed it, there has been no change in terms of USCIS policy so far. There may be changes in the future, but I think it's something for us to try to work on and negotiate and let's brainstorm and try to see how we can all come up with ways of how to, you know, try to twist the government's arm and really make them realize they can't just do stuff like this. And that's a very important point because for all practical reasons uh, and purposes, we have not seen any changes whatsoever. So USCIS seems to be approving all of the uh, cases um, that are filed with uh, naming the third-party worksite openly. And um, that's uh, one issue. The other one is that I, I wanted to just mention, I know that NAFSA has been uh, working with government agencies to try to clarify the uh, issue, and hopefully we'll get some clarification pretty soon, which will also hopefully will result in DSOs being uh, more informed on the issue and, and um, resolving this um, situation that we're uh, in now, uh, which is neither here nor there, because nobody knows exactly what that means. Exactly. So, you know, I know the, the question that is probably lingering on everyone's mind, especially when, you know, Murti Law from Ashila Murti or any of us speak is, hey, you know, how can we ensure that justice is done? How can we be sure that the government doesn't pull tricks like this over and over again? You know, can we challenge this in a court of law? And my sort of response, and I'm guessing most lawyers will be in agreement on this, that the USCIS cannot just change its policy or the law simply by quietly, surreptitiously posting something on their website and hoping that nobody will notice it till they can use it as a trump card against you as employers or as employees uh, or for your employees. And so denials that result from a STEM offsite placement could and should definitely potentially be challenged on the, the, on the basis of the USCIS failing to go through the notice and comment process 
required in order to actually create any new type of regulation. Moreover, as we've said before, and as Chris and Anna and myself have discussed, ICE actually, which has the responsibility for creating regulations regarding STEM OPT, hasn't said a word on this issue. So it's not just unclear, but it almost seems uh, unfathomable why and how the USCIS has even the regulatory authority to change the program or what another agency, namely ICE, should and can do. Um, now, ICE, has, as you know, has um, not issued anything, whether it's a regulation policy, guidance memo, not even an email or a clarification about this new USCIS interpretation. So it would make perfect sense to basically challenge the USCIS. It would be ripe for a challenge under as a violation of the APA, the Administrative Procedures Act, uh, violation under the Constitution, taking away of liberty and due process under law. I mean, challenge, multiple layer of challenges because it really deprives you of your ability to continue doing your business as consulting companies. I guess the most troubling aspect of this whole thing is what we are seeing DSOs, again, because of their lack of knowledge and them thinking that somehow this is official legal change in policy because most of the DSOs generally tend not to be lawyers. So they don't understand that this is probably something illegal or improper on the part of the USCIS. They think that they should just verbatim follow what they think is USCIS policy. So that's the biggest risk uh, is the DSO refusing to recommend STEM OPT extensions based on offsite work, which is to me the most troubling. So in conclusion, you know, what I would say is Please do not panic because, as you know, my philosophy on this always is if you panic and it helps to solve the problem, then please panic extra. But we, you and I know that if we can focus our time, effort and energy in coming up with a solution, trying to negotiate with, um, you know, NAFSA, with DSOs and with USCIS. And if nothing works, challenge them, challenge, challenging them in a court of law, because that's what the Constitution and democracy allows is when any government agency exceeds their authority, they need to get a slap on the wrist the way any of us can be sued when we violate the rights of another human being. Uh, and so, and, and as we've seen with the Trump administration, there have been multiple lawsuits. And in majority of the lawsuits, actually, they tend to lose most of them because they're often in violation of the law. So please continue to uh, use the uh, employees, follow the text of the what the regulations have actually uh, require, and uh, you know make sure that if the DSO is refusing to sign or approve the OPT, that you go back and say, please read the NAFSA website, please read the multi.com article, uh, which I believe was the first law firm article again on this subject after right you know after NAFSA because we'd had discussions with NAFSA. Look at them; they clearly make it clear that this was not approved. This is a questionable policy, and you and other DSOs are approving this. And please get NAFSA to approve it. We will also do whatever we can from our side at the multi law firm to contact NAFSA to see if they would be willing to change their policy on this. Um, but with that, unless either Chris or Anna has anything else to add, I would like to thank each of you for joining us today. I know this is a very hot topic, and I know it's of grave concern to you in your business because these STEM OPT extension students provide you the pipeline for your H-1B employees. But hopefully, 
we can knock some sense into them, we can negotiate, and if not, the lawsuit option is always a very powerful tool for all of us to work together to make things happen. Thank you again for joining us. We hope you have a good afternoon, and please don't hesitate to contact us if we can help you. This is a free service. The content is the protected, copyrighted property of the Murthy Law Firm. Unauthorized recording or dissemination of these materials without prior permission is prohibited by law. Learn about our firm, how to engage our services and more at www.murthy.com.